Hey friends, thanks for joining us for the Cinemarga Podcast. Just so you know, this is an adult podcast. We're grown-ups, and we do use adult language, so you are going to hear some swears. You're also going to hear two friends geek out about movies that they love in the first half of the podcast, and in the second half of the podcast, you're going to hear us get super deep talking about the psychological, spiritual, and mythological themes that we think is what the movie is really all about. If that sounds like fun, thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Cinemarga Movies to Die For. Carl Jung says, everything that frustrates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourselves." I think a life is well lived, in my opinion, if you can have some balance between structure and like freedom and like going with the flow. The single greatest spiritual practice is trying to find compassion for frustrating people, for me at least. When something is grating on me, I always stop and I think, wait a minute, do I do this? Is this a thing that like feels too close to home? I love this movie's sense of like John Candy frustrating the shit out of Steve Martin and then being invited into his family at the end of the movie. My cat is putting his paw on my scotch. What are you doing? Everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Cinemartyr Podcast. This is our uh, holiday special this year. Uh, it's one year from the time we started the Cinemartyr Podcast, but this is a podcast where we watch movies and then talk about the psychological, spiritual, and mythological themes in those movies. My name is Ryan, and I'm joined, as always, by my good buddy Mike. How you doing, brother? Hey, man. How you doing? <laughs> always good to get a chance to hang out with you, and I'm well. I'm a little tired. Mm. Uh, just got back from a big hike, which nice. was pretty rad. Big part of my normal. Haven't gotten a chance to do it in a while. So I just did. I was hiking out at the Hidden Mountain oh. out here in wow. New Mexico, just south of Albuquerque. Sounds, uh, sounds very, uh, beautiful. <laughs> it is. You should come, you should come when you come visit, we should check it out. It's like the weirdest hike I do. It's kind of out in the middle of nowhere, yeah. open land as far as you can see. And then there's these three little volcanic mountains side by side, and there's all kinds of weird stuff hidden back mm. in the mountain. There's pretty sure there's a grave or two. There's a bunch wow. of kivas and um, just like random things people have carved. And there's what they call the mystery stone, okay. which is about 150 years old, and it has a bunch of Hebrew inscriptions on it. Wow. Um, some people claim it's, you know, thousands of years old, yeah, but yeah. it's not. It's about 150 years old. Yeah. Pretty cool, though. It's fun, awesome. fun hike. Super awesome. weird. That's great. That's great. Um, yeah. So, uh, like I said, this is our uh, holiday special. So it's been, believe it or not, a year since we started this podcast, and we've uh, miraculously made it through an entire year. Um, so this yeah. week we are going to be doing uh, trains, planes, and automobile, or planes, trains, and automobiles. Yes, sir. Which, which is actually a Thanksgiving movie, but. Yep. Uh, I thought this would be a fun one to do this week, so we, so we picked it. Um, now, Mike, this is a different movie for the Cinemartyr podcast because for the first time ever, I believe, you informed me that you had never seen this movie. Never. I've <laughs> Which, never. I've seen one scene in this movie more than once. I've okay. never seen this movie. Okay, so uh, as we've as beca- we've started to do, to do recently, um, what was your favorite scene from this this movie? Wow. So, so this is going to be real. Like, uh, this is sort of like what we talked about with Dune. Um, 
because I've never seen it before, the whole thing sort of felt like one long scene to me. Okay. Um, but I will say the very, very beginning where they're fighting over the taxi cabs, uh-huh. just to me, took me back to living in New York City <laughs> in an age before Uber. Uh, and then also for no particular reason, there's a random Kevin Bacon cameo. Right? And I don't even know if Kevin Bacon was famous yet that it was a cameo, but I Kevin don't... Bacon is the guy he's, he's like racing for the cab. Yeah. It was hysterical. Yeah, I didn't I I didn't look that up to see if like was he he had to have been known at the time. But I don't it's just a weird weird little cameo there. Um yeah, that's it's a great I mean it's iconic that that whole opening sequence there. Uh my favorite scene there's two but I'm going to I'm going to go with the funny one cuz I'm sure we'll get into the other one later, but the funny one that always gets me every single time is when they're in the hotel and they wake up the next morning and uh they're talking about like, I forget what they say before it, but basically Steve Martin goes, where's your hand? Yes. And, and Del goes, <laughs> John Candy goes in between two pillows and he goes, those aren't pillows. And they stand up. It's just like, oh my gosh, I, I die laughing at that. I mean, I laughed through this entire movie again this time, but uh, that scene is always uh, hilarious to me. That, um, by the way, the, remember I said I'd only seen one scene more than once, and it's yeah. that scene where he's like, hand was between two pillows. I've seen that scene twice, and nothing else. <laughs> no, actually, no, I'm wrong. I am wrong. Okay. There is one scene I have seen as well, and I watch it over and over and over on YouTube, yeah. even though I've never seen the movie. And it's it's one of those, I've told you before that my brother and I used to talk in movie lines. Yeah. There's one scene that broke into my regular lexicon, and I will frequently say it to people. And I love when, in, like, in the middle of a meeting or something... I'm just, we're doing something and I can look at someone and go, you're going the wrong way. And someone knows what I'm talking about. I love that scene. That That is genius. By far my favorite scene in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I love that scene. Um, But anyway, real quick. Does he know which way we're going? (laughs) What does he know? He's drunk. (laughs) Oh my God. That's great. Oh God. I love it. I love it. So how you how you been? What's what's life been like uh, the last couple of weeks? Dude, so busy. Um, yeah. <laughs> I knew you know we had a, a lot of big projects, and I knew life would be really busy until the end of October. And so everybody who had like uh, a podcast or something uh, or a project that they wanted me to do or like a speaking gig or something like that, they're like, "Hey, what do you think?" And I was like, "Just hit me in November, December, because I'll be yeah. really busy till then." And what I didn't consider was by pushing all that extra stuff in November, December. When I actually got to my to my like slow two months of the year, <laughs> yeah, I'd filled them up. Yeah, so um, yeah, man, um, but good, you know, <laughs> yeah. no major complaints. Awesome. Like That's I good. said, I'm enjoying the New Mexico winter out here, and uh, and like I said, just just got to finally get back and do some hiking again. That's great. Uh, Albus. The cat is sitting right here, riding shotgun, uh, getting excited to attack the microphone at some point. So what could I possibly complain? I'm drinking some scotch aged in apple brandy barrels. I mean, Dang. that sounds what awesome. What can you say? Yeah. That sounds I'll awesome. Take That's great, man. Yeah. Things have been good for me too. I mean, um, nothing crazy happening. I got to go visit my cousin up and he lives in like Northern PA. Uh, he, lives, he just bought like a 60 acre farm up there with his family and um so we went my parents were in town and they wanted to go visit him so we went up and hung out with him and uh had a, a nice night up there we watched a bunch of christmas movies while we mm. while we were up there uh which was great so and, great uh, just got to reconnect with my cousin for a little while which was which was awesome um had a christmas party the other night nice which uh, we sang karaoke for like 
I think it was at least five hours straight. That and sounds I, amazing. And I was doing most of the singing. I mean, there was I had a couple compatriots in it, but um, the host of the party fell asleep. Oh, then <laughs> like you got you got to carry on. Like at nine o'clock, and we didn't yeah. stop singing karaoke till one thirty in the morning. So, uh, but uh, yeah, so it's been it's been chill. I've been you know working, doing the normal stuff, but uh, nothing nothing too exciting. But I have. Uh, like I said, we watched, I think we watched like four Christmas movies. When well, I was up in my that head. leads me to a question before we transition to talking about planes, trains, and automobiles. Yeah. To kick it all the way back to our very first episode, have you watched any versions of my favorite Christmas movie, which of course is any variation of Dickens' Christmas Carol? I have. I, we watched, uh, my parents, like I said, my parents were up for like two weeks and um, one night we were looking for something. And it's mm-hmm. it's tricky finding a movie that sure that my parents are be into you know um, yeah so i was like searching i was like oh you know what let's watch let's watch muppet christmas and oh uh, we watched it and oh, i still love it it was great and it and I, then and that actually made me think the next day when i was working i was like you know what i'm gonna listen to episode one of the cinema martyr oh my and god i listen I, li- I re-listened to the first episode <laughs> yeah. too i i love it i love talking about that and what i'm doing this year is i'm watching muppets christmas carol one song at a time Oh. So I like watch to a song and then stop. I'm savoring it. And then I'm going to watch the next part to a song and so on and so forth. That's but interesting. I told you last time in that episode, I'm going to tell you again, if you can get your hands on the Albert Finney musical, definitely watch <laughs> it. Possibly with alcohol, but it is, it is great. That's awesome. I was, that, I was, that, I was re-listening I to people song. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, I was re-listening to that and I was remembering, I totally had forgotten about your whole thing about how you have like your practice every year of using that story as a, uh, as a, as a time of reflection through this season. Um, yeah, I've given two talks about that in the last two weeks. Yeah. That's awesome. Three weeks in the last three weeks. Yeah. So listeners, if you haven't listened to the first episode of Cinemartyr, uh, go back because at least the last little portion where Mike talks about his, how he uses that story of a Christmas Carol to to work through uh, reflection at the end of the year is uh, really, I think really worth it. Um, Yeah. Basically carries through from my birthday or or from, from Thanksgiving, you know, Advent for me from Thanksgiving to my birthday on the 4th of January. I have a whole kind of meditation I do and reflection. That's all based on that story. And it's, and then I always listen, I'm doing this right now, listen to Patrick Stewart reading it, which is just, (laughs) oh man. Yeah. It just does not get any better. Yeah. And that episode, by the way, I think our shortest episode ever. And I was so stressed out that it was too long at the time. And then we just and threw then we're that just out like, the you know Two-hour episodes. Let's do it. I predict this is going to be our shortest episode of all time. It might be. It might all be. All right, cool. It might be. If, oddly enough, okay, the little inside baseball here. We have a little uh, inside rivalry going with our buddy Eric Schwartz. And he's up to 17 episodes released on his podcast. Yeah. <laughs> cynical. We're, we have eight of them released. We have nine recorded we have one that we haven't released yet and then this one yeah. so it's 10 so we're seven episodes behind but if i do the math right i think we're only like an hour shy of total <laughs> runtime <laughs> because our oh, episodes are twice as long as good his. eric is nice and crisp i i uh i think uh eric if you're listening i think enjoying you as a as a podcast host is my favorite expression of you in the 25 years that you and i've been friends uh which is not to knock him as like a good friend or a minister or the other things he's been. But I, uh, every, every, whatever it is, every other Tuesday when Evan Cinnable comes out, I, I tend to throw it on in my morning sunrise yeah. run. Yeah. Um, so there's your plug, Eric. Yeah. There's your plug. Uh, he gave us a nice plug on his last episode. So I guess we got to repay the favor. Well, I think episode <laughs> crossover is coming very soon. It is coming. And which I'm coming. excited but, about. 
the other thing that, that I was looking up the, the stats today and I noticed something, dear listeners, it's, it's the holiday season. If you could give Mike and I a gift this holiday season, it would be to rate and review our podcast because <laughs> Eric yeah. is kicking our butt in that, in that realm. He's got 22 reviews. Well, I think he has uh, something that we don't have and that's listeners. Oh, oh, that might do it. That might do it. Hmm. We have we have one review, but our one review is pretty good. It's pretty. Thank good. you, reviewer. It's pretty good. That was my pretty sis- rad review. My sister told me she was going to give us a review, and I guess she hasn't done it yet. So yeah, maybe we'll I get might, up to two. We'll pay some ringers. <laughs> well, this is the thing, though. And anybody listening, Ryan reached out and he's like, "What would you think about doing a podcast about movies and spirituality?" And I was like, "I will do it." provided that we are not trying to grow an audience. Like if it's just a labor of love project we do for fun and we're not getting into the like, you got to keep it tight and you got to advertise it and all that stuff. Then I was like, I'm in. And this is the weirdest podcast in the world, right? Cause the first half of it is you and I literally like geeking out on movies and like industry, like why they were the way they are. And then the second half we get so deep into the spiritual stuff. Yeah. It's almost like two separate podcasts. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's, I love it. It's yeah. super fun. And it's yeah. kind of what it's like, I think lives in living inside either one of our heads. This is about totally. what it sounds like. Yeah. So, so for the two of you who listen and enjoy, thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you, thank and you, I'm glad you. that we don't have to, uh, heavily tweak the formula. We can just sort of have fun. Yeah, no, it's great. I'm, I'm super stoked. Um, Oh, real quick. I, I almost forgot. Uh, did you watch anything cool lately? I am heartbroken. I watched the, I talked about this before um, and, and we're going to, this will come up, you know, we're going to talk about, I think family probably a mm-hmm. little bit in planes, trains and automobiles. This is my suspicion is where the conversation is going to go. And I watched uh, the Netflix live action cowboy mm-hmm. bebop, mm-hmm. which I was very excited about because I love the anime cowboy bebop right. and it's a found family story, which I love so much. Okay. And I'm crushed that it was good, but not necessarily great. And it did not get picked up for a second season. So it ends on a big cliffhanger and they're not going to finish it. And the reason is because I think Cowboy Bebop heavily influenced another one of my favorite shows of all time, which is Firefly. And then what I think they did was Firefly in turn heavily influenced the live action remake of, oh. of Cowboy Bebop. I think they were trying to make it feel a lot like Firefly. Okay. And it just didn't always work. Yeah, um, I never watched the animated thing. I, I'm not really oh, familiar okay. with it. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say you never watched Firefly. Oh, no, no, no. Say, I love Firefly. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, no. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Ah. <laughs> uh, I love me some Firefly. I think we should do the movie Serenity at some point. Okay. But I think that's, I haven't had time to watch anything, yeah. honestly. If you have anything yeah. good, I, I tried, yeah. I, want, I hear Wheel of Time is good. Okay, really? Um, I don't know, man. I'm watching Hawkeye, the Marvel show. I enjoy that a lot. That's yeah. kind of planes, trains, and automobiles in the Marvel universe uh, in its own <laughs> okay. way. That's about it though, man. I'm, I'm, you know, if anybody's listening, I'm looking for a good book series to read okay. and a good show to watch. I'm very excited about Spider-Man this week. That's about what I have to say about it all. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think, um, I'm trying to think, we haven't started Hawkeye, our schedules, mm-hmm. like I said, my parents were up for two weeks, uh, we were doing a lot of visiting with family and whatnot, um, the only movie, the only like newer movie we watched was, um, we watched The Power of the Dog, have you watched this What yet? is that? It's with Benedict Cumberbatch, um, and Kirsten Dunst. Okay. And Jesse, what's his name? The Kirsten Dunst's husband um, was in Breaking Bad. Um, I don't so know who Kirsten Dunst is married to. I don't. I don't know these things. Yeah, sorry, I don't know. I'm screwing it up. But anyway, it's it's like a western, and it's like a slice of life style. It's a very oh, slow fun. burn 
for the first like almost 90% of the movie. Okay. And at the end they they kind of put a little twist at the end. Um my parents were not a fan. I kind of liked it once I understood what they were doing at the end. Okay. But it's a slow burn. It's definitely a, you know, it's a settle in and just kind of be part of what's happening, you know. Okay. Um, one of those types of things. But um other than that, just uh, I watched Muppets, I watched Home Alone, I watched Christmas Vacation. Uh, yeah, that's about it. So nothing to explain. Right, I have to do. I haven't even put up a Christmas tree yet, and oh, I'm, really? I'm normally like a October yeah. Christmas tree kind of a guy. What's going on? Too busy, huh? Busy, dude. Busy, busy, busy. <laughs> no right. rest for the weary. Well, I'm glad I I'm glad I was able to capture you for a couple hours here tonight. So yes, sir. <laughs> I, I I specifically chose a Christmassy drink, and I'm excited about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So um. Let's get into the the synopsis. Oh, the one thing, did you notice on the first episode of Cinemartyr how short my synopsis was? It was like a minute long. And yeah. now as we've progressed, our synopsises have gotten oh, yeah. longer and longer. Oh, yeah. As is our check-in and everything else. Yeah, yeah for sure. So, uh, so anyway, this movie was released uh, November 25th, 1987. It's written mm-hmm. and directed by the great John Hughes, which wrote and directed... Uh, every 80s movie maybe i, I had don't know. no idea this was a john hughes movie and <laughs> also don't judge me right because i'm okay. a movie person but i actually don't really get the great love of john hughes not because i don't think john hughes movies are amazing okay but because i didn't get to experience the 80s because we were in church the whole time mm. so i'm like still at 45 going back and wow. encountering jaws like when when the first spider-man uh uh homecoming came out and everyone was like, it feels so much like a John Hughes movie. I was like, I guess I should go back and watch them. Except okay. for Ferris Bueller's Day Off is John Hughes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now that I love. Yeah. That I, that I somehow that got in there. That, that okay. was <laughs> one of my favorite movie for a long time. Interesting. Um, the one little bit of trivia right up top here is that I read that he uh, wrote this after his fl- a flight he was on was diverted to Wichita, K- Kansas. And it then took him five days to get home. So yeah. this was inspired by like his true life story. Um, but, uh, you know, <clears throat> I'm sure anybody listening to this has probably seen the movie. But um, the, the main characters in it are Steve Martin, who plays a guy named Neil Page. And the late, great John Candy, who plays a guy named Del Griffith. Which... May his memory be eternal. John yeah, Candy. Oh seriously. My God. Like... Anytime I watch a John Candy movie, I it's just he's just one of those people you just can't help but like laugh. You know, he's just so so good in what he does. Um, but the 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 synopsis of this movie is uh, Neil Page, um, Steve Martin's character. He's a Chicago businessman and he's in New York at a meeting and, he, and they're finalizing uh, m- like a marketing image for uh, like a cosmetics thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the meeting goes absolutely nowhere. And the guy that's in charge of the meeting, like the head honcho or whatever, um, says that they'll after, apparently they've been in this meeting for like hours and he basically says, uh, we'll just reconvene after the holidays, which Neil is like furious with because he flew all the way out there for this meeting. And now yeah. he's got to get back home for Thanksgiving. It's right. It's so I guess it would be what, like two or three days before Thanksgiving based on yeah. the timeline of the movie. Right. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so he gets, so he leaves the meeting, he runs outside, he's trying to hail a cab, which is where we see Kevin Bacon randomly, and he races Kevin Bacon to get a cab, does not get the cab. Then he uh, eventually gets to another cab where he, another guy like gets there at the same time. He tries to buy the cab from the guy. Um, 
for what was what's the final price that he settles on? Oh, is I it, don't remember. The, he he just grifts him like he gets him so high. I think it's up to like fifty or a hundred dollars to yeah, buy the cab. At least fifty. He might. Yeah. Get him, yeah. <laughs> if you'd pay thirty, then you'd probably go fifty or something right, like right. that. Right. Yeah. Like exactly. A, yeah. yeah. Um, but while he's getting the money out of his wallet in the background, you see John Candy's character loading he has this giant steamer trunk that he's carrying around with him and he uh is loading the trunk into the cab the cabbie's like i guess bored of waiting for steve martin to get into into the cab is is that what those things are called steamer trunks i think so oh i I mean i have no idea i used to have one listen i'm gonna i'm gonna put us on a divergence uh i'm a huge fan of halloween okay and so one of the things i realized is the ideal way to have a great halloween costume is not to keep doing a different costume every year, but to pick one costume, <laughs> commit to it for life, and buy a really cool element for it every year. Yep. So many moons ago, during the Pirates of the Caribbean phase, I decided to be a pirate. And every year I would spend like $150 and add another cool <laughs> element to my pirate costume, <laughs> which was pretty phenomenal at one point. And I had it all in what you've now identified as a steamer trunk. Okay, okay. When I moved from New York City to California, I packed up all my stuff and somehow forgot to pack up my steamer trunk. Okay. And it was left in Queens. So if anyone's listening (laughs) and you found a steamer trunk with a really phenomenal pirate costume inside it, it is mine. Please return it. Anyway, John Candy, steamer trunk, puts it in the cab. Steve Martin has already tripped over the trunk in the previous scene. Right. Um, and then uh, what? He drives off. The the cab drives off, and Steve Martin realizes, like as he as the cab is pulling, he's putting his wallet away, and he looks up, and the cab's going away. So he chases down the cab. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think he looks in this. He sees John Candy at that point. He, like he catches up to the cab, and like John Candy like freaks out or whatever. Um, and the cab goes away. The next scene we see, he's at the airport, and they're sitting waiting to board their or Steve Martin is sitting, waiting to board his plane. He looks up and who's sitting across from, but John Candy. Um, so then they get on the plane and, and, uh, and Neil is supposed to be in first class, but they bump him to coach, which he's furious about. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing they can do. The flight's overloaded, whatever he gets back and sits down and who is his seat partner, but John Candy. Um, and then John Candy, the scene where he (laughs) takes off his shoes and then he takes off his socks like possibly the worst thing that a, a person on a, on a flight can, can do to you is when you're on a flight oh, with yeah. somebody and they take off their shoes next to you. Um, and uh, so then they, they're, they're flying and what happens is the flight gets diverted because of snow and they, they land in Wichita, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, when they land, they find out that all flights into Chicago are canceled. So they have to spend the night in Wichita, at which point Dell comes up to, to uh, Neil and says like, hey, I, I got a hookup. I'm a, he's a shower curtain ring salesman. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. And he's like, I got a hookup at this motel. Uh, I can get you, you can stay with me. And they get there and it turns out that it's a one queen bed uh, room. So they have to yeah. sleep in the same bed together. Right. John Candy, not a small man. No. And he's a very boisterous character. He's loud. Yeah. He likes to make jokes. Um, he's, we find out he's, his hygiene is questionable. Um, <laughs> That's a very polite way to say that. Um, you know, he, he's not, he's a little bit grating, you know? Um, mm. And at, at some point, lot. yeah, he's a lot. He's intense. And at some point, uh, Neil freaks out on him and it's one of, it's a pretty hard scene to watch because he, 
rips him to shreds in that scene. Yeah. Like he <laughs> rips him. He kind of emotionally eviscerates him. Yeah, it's pretty intense. Yeah, and then there's that great scene, that great monologue where uh, oh. John Candy's like, yeah, I'm a, but I like me or whatever. You know, he goes through that Honestly, whole. I, I will talk about this. I struggle because I genuinely did find John Candy dislikable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he was, he's obnoxious. Yeah. But that scene where he's like, I'm a good person and I like myself. I was right. like, oh my God, this is gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. It's no, wonderful. It's a, it's a great. It's yeah. A great, it was uh, definitely his like hero moment. That was fantastic. Yeah. Um, and um, now at this point, I, I did read a bit of trivia. There was a scene cut here at this point, which is Dell orders pizza. Okay, yeah. they cut this, and he tips the pizza guy one dollar. Because okay? he that's all he has to tip him. I think he no, oh, he, he just stole money out of Neil's wallet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He stole it out of Neil's and he wallet. Tips him a dollar, but that's not in the actual theatrical release. Okay, no. Because what we find out later when they wake up for breakfast the next morning is that they're, they've been robbed. And what actually had happened was that pizza kid had come back and robbed them in the middle of the night. Because he was so pissed off because they tipped him such a shitty tip. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not in the movie. Well, and and I don't know if you know this. This is also the new thing that we do is you have these long synopsis and I, because I just keep interrupting you. Did you read the original cut of this movie was four hours long? I did hear that they started out yeah. really long. And then, and then John Hughes cut it down to two hours, and then the studio cut it down to 90. Right. So apparently there's a ton of subplots yep. that are missing. Yeah, I read a ton. There's the whole scene with the cop, which I don't even know if I'll get to that in the synopsis mm. here, but the, there's uh, uh, Michael McKean's, McKean's character as the cop. Mm. That apparently was a much longer scene. Um okay. And, 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 and in fact, there's a whole bit with that that's missed in the movie, which is you miss the fact that at that point they're in Wisconsin, I think, mm-hmm. which means that they have actually overshot Chicago by a hundred miles. They, they've gone oh God. further than they needed to go, but they oh cut that God. whole, that whole bit out. Um, yeah. but anyway, so that's, um, so anyway, they're at, they're, they're at breakfast. They realize that they're broke. Um, they, uh, they eventually get a ride in a pickup truck in the back of a pickup truck with this like super redneck dude to mm-hmm. take them to a train is the next thing. Correct. Hold on. Yeah. Let me look at my notes here. Uh, yeah, they take it to the train station. They're on the train and the train breaks down. Then they yes. have to walk through a field <laughs> to a bus, to a it. bus. Then the bus gets them as far as St. Louis, and yeah. then they split up because Neil is sick of John Candy's character. He's, he's mm-hmm. sick of uh, Dell, um, and they they split up and try to rent cars. And then yeah. uh, Neil gets dropped off in the parking lot by like a bus to, to to pick up his rental car, and he walks across the parking lot, and there's no car there. So yeah. he has to walk all the way back to the airport, which gets us to one of the most insane scenes in, in cinema history, I think. the I think it's one minute and 19 seconds is the scene where they say the F word, I think, what did I read? It's used 19 times. It's unbelievable. Hang on, it's one it? minute long. Stop? My cat is putting his paw on my scotch. What are you doing? What are you possibly doing? No, stop. Sorry. Yes, and that's why this movie is rated... Uh, I think what is it R? Yeah, I the think reason so. it's R is just because of this one scene. Yeah, it's sixty because they long. use the F word so much. And what I'm, <laughs> now, mind you, I'm totally watching this with snaps. my parents. My parents are in town. My parents are very conservative, you know, very uh, yeah. spirit, very Christian. Um, 
and they start the scene. I had forgot about this scene. And it's going oh on and on and on. And like, I'm just like, oh no, this is like embarrassing. I mean, they get their money's worth out of it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But the payoff is so good because the payoff is the punchline that the lady behind the counter goes because yeah. finally so he goes, she, he's freaking out on the woman behind the counter at the car rental agency, yeah, right? Yeah. And he like just curses her out as we used to say like he swears up and down yeah a lot of the f word right and then what is her what is her retort so finally he goes what can i do here and she goes well i guess you're just fucked it's brilliant <laughs> yeah and it's um and i forget what because he doesn't have a credit, credit card or something and, I don't know what it is. yeah also, I mean, who is she she's in something that woman i forgot to look it up because in, i okay. felt the same thing when i watched i know her like, she was in some like, show yeah Totally. She's like very sweet. She's a very, very sweet character. And she's got that Midwestern accent or yeah. what? I, I forget. Um, hold on. I'm going to actually look it up right now. Okay. Uh, so that is Edie McClurg. She was in Ferris, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. No, she was in something else. She's the secretary. She's the principal's assistant in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Okay. She was in Wonder Years. Yep. Uh... She was in Columbo, which I'm rewatching right now. Hmm. Never seen it. Really? Nope. It's, it's great. They were like, it was like a whole, like each episode was like a little movie, like a little detective yeah. movie. Um, no, I, I definitely know her from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That's 100%. Another John Hughes movie. That's exactly what it is. Okay. All right. Well, anyway. And I think she, I think she may even deliver some well-timed, well, cut this, this is rambling, yeah. but she may deliver some really well-timed swears in Ferris Bueller's Day Off as well. Okay. Yeah, maybe. Uh, it's been a while since I saw that movie. Um, okay, so where are we? Okay, we're at the rental place. So then he leaves. He walks outside, gets almost run over, or he gets gets in a fight with the guy, right? Lands on the ground. Oh, yeah. And then Dell yeah, he's almost... Given, he's, he's being an asshole at this point. Yeah. He's unnecessarily being an asshole, and people start giving it back to him. Yeah. Because he's then, frustrated. And if you've ever had... We'll get to this, but if you've ever had crazy travel shenanigans, it does really great on you. I mean, I, I've been there. There's a lot of this movie that I related to because I'm like, God, this stuff is happening to me. Oh, I was Buses just talking... on um, airplanes. Our buddy Tom, who uh, was just on the podcast, just called me the other day. He had to go to New York for business. Yeah. And he has this hotel that when he goes there to the hotel he goes to, you know, yeah. every single time for business. Yep. And he's had like, I think, 60 stays this year already or something yeah. like that, you know? And yep. they like didn't he had this room booked for forever got there they didn't have the room yep and then he fought with them got a room they sent him up there and there was a guy working on the heat and the water because there was no heat or water in the apartment oh in the <laughs> so and, but yeah travel is the worst um oh well i mean i've been on like almost every crazy thing that can happen on a plane has happened to me i've been three different flights that had medical emergency landings i've been yeah. on planes that have been struck by lightning i mean we all have at this point i've been on a plane where like we were landing and they're like hey uh some fire trucks are gonna follow us down the runway don't <laughs> mind that our landing gear wasn't working earlier but we think it's okay now mm. just a precaution um wow uh, yeah like you name it yeah. i mean but if you fly a lot it's just law of numbers i used to fly a lot so yeah yeah oh my god i used to fly like Almost every month, right? Didn't I you? used to fly coast to coast. For five years, I flew coast to coast every single month. Yeah, because you were um, going back and forth between PA and California. Yeah, New York City and California at one point. Yeah, yeah, yeah a lot of flights, a lot of yeah. flights. And then and then a lot of buses, because I used to, you know, bus in and out of the city. So right. a lot of crazy right. stuff has happened to me on buses as well. Yeah. And then uh, I was, you can cut this later. I was really like, this is the one year anniversary of when I took that trip to, to Chattanooga. And I was, I got like... Uh, 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 last minute snowstorm kicked up, which caused me to crash 
and I was trying to get my car out of a snowbank and got locked out of my car with it running. And then, and then some folks came along with, they wanted $500 to tow my car out of the snowbank. And then all this crazy shit happened. And I finally got to see my friend in Chattanooga and I pulled up in the night that I was there. I pulled up and I was telling him this story of all these crazy things that happened. And while I was telling him, we heard a loud crash because a drunk driver had crashed into my parked car. And then that night there was an earthquake uh and then and then the next day the claims adjuster was coming to look at my car and he got in an accident on the way there it was just like one thing after another that was this time three years ago and then before you know it there was all these locusts everywhere oh my god it's unbelievable the water turned red we didn't know what was yeah. going on it was yeah. cats and dogs living together living mass together hysteria. mass hysteria we've talked about this previously <laughs> i have weird automotive luck so yeah so all that to say i feel I these characters about that story though Oh my God. That's a great one. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, so then sure enough, Dell almost runs over Neil, right? Like he, he hits he, him, I think, yeah. or almost hits him. Almost something hits like that. Him. Yeah. Um, and so then once again, the two are reunited and now they're in a rental car. <laughs> Yeah, and they start driving, and this is where we get to the scene that Mike was talking about. Where at one point they're driving, and Neil is, or uh, sorry, Dell. There's a couple great scenes here. The scene where Dell is trying to get his jacket off, and he gets stuck on the like the lever for oh, the seat, hysterical on his left hand. So then he's like steering with his right hand, and he, then he decides, okay, if I get my right hand out, then I can get my left arm out. So then he gets his other hand stuck, and then he spins around, right, almost crashes the car, but Neil sleeps the whole thing. And then I guess is that I, now I'm drawing a blank. Is that how he gets spun around on the highway? Uh yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. So then they get turned around, and then he he then he goes up the uh, exit ramp of the highway. Or that's what happened. Yeah. 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 So then they're driving, and then there's these uh, this couples driving next to them, screaming at him, "You're going the wrong way! You're going the wrong way!" And they're like, um, Neil and 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 uh, Dell are going back and forth, like, "What are they talking about? Oh, they don't know what. How would they know where we're going? They don't know which way we're going." Um, hilarious! Hilarious scene. So anyway, this is this is where it, you eventually find out he's driving down the the road on the wrong side of the highway, and then there's two mm -hmm. tractor trailers coming towards them, and then oh he God, so miraculously good. drives through the center of the two of them, and they have this weird scene where, at one point, he turns into the devil. It's it's <laughs> and he, super weird, super funny. And he's laughing way. at at Neil. And he's like, ah, ha ha ha! And he's the devil. I don't know, crazy. They eventually get through this they pull over and they're like out like sort of collecting themselves and neil's freaking out of course and then in the background you see the car burst into flames and it burst into flames because earlier dell was smoking and he flicked a cigarette and it went in the back seat didn't go out the window it crashed the out the window went in the back seat so now the car is on fire the next scene we see is them driving down the road and the car is completely gutted with fire um they eventually make it to a hotel and Neil like sort of pawns his watch to the guy because they, again, they have no cash. They have no credit cards, nothing. Rolex. And yeah, he, he pawns his watch to the, the guy behind the counter to get a, a, a hotel room, but Dell has nothing. So he literally is sitting out in the car and it's snowing and he's freezing his ass off. And finally, Neil sees him out there and, and tells him to come in. And this is actually one of the sweet <laughs> moments in the movie. Sorry, go ahead. No, it was that, that that initial like uh, uh, scene is really great where he's like, I've got, I forget how much money in a Rolex. 
And then and then John Candy's like, I've got two dollars and a Casio. Right. And he like holds yeah. it up over his yeah. wrist like a model or whatever. Yep. Um You know this reminds me of one of my all time favorite familial stories. What no. the Rolex and the Casio? Oh yes. Oh my gosh, I forgot about this. Do you want yeah. to tell it here or do you want to? Yeah, uh, whatever. I, of course, because this is what I do. I interrupt you. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I grew up I grew up in the prosperity gospel, um, <laughs> which means when I was a kid, my parents were ministers and all their all their colleagues were super rich prosperity gospel ministers, like millions of dollars. So we were at a pastor's conference, but my parents made a, made a proactive decision to stay middle class and not become uber wealthy because they felt like it was weird. Yeah. Fancy that. Yeah. So... Um, they were in an elevator with a bunch of their friends who were these prosperity preachers and they were showing each other their like, I don't know what watches are like Rolexes, right, tag yeah. hewers, whatever, like these, you know, the one guy's like, oh man, I flew to Europe to get this one. It was $10,000 and he's showing this and he's showing that. And my mom just reaches her hand between the two of them and goes, Casio, $14 at Kmart. And, and she presses it and goes, it has a light. <laughs> she goes, does your watch light up? And they were like, no, it doesn't. It was just such a typical, like, yeah, yeah. yeah she loved to take the piss out of that. Anyway, sorry. Yes. Cheers so, to your mom. Cheers, cheers to my mom. Rest in peace. God love you. Drink one. Um, so, yeah. So, all that to say, uh, the Casio in the $2 doesn't fly. He's sleeping in his car. And Steve Martin, who's so had enough of him. Yeah slowly starts to feel guilty that he has this room all to himself and john candy's freezing not just in a car but in a car that has no roof has no windows nothing it's burnt out burnt out us yeah so he's freezing his ass off yeah yeah so eventually um steve martin allows him to come in into the room and this is like a really great scene in the movie where they get drunk they they buy some booze at some point and they get drunk together i think what they do is they raid the minibar yeah, yeah. And they uh they start having fun and they start um and this will be one thing that I want to comment on later where where uh Dell says something to the effect of like like Steve Barton's like, How do you do it or whatever? And he's like, you know, I just go with the flow, man, just go with the flow. Yeah. Um and they have this great t- moment of connection and Dell's talking about his wife and Steve Martin's talking about his family. Um and it's a it's a really good heartwarming uh I think that whole sequence is the beating heart of the whole film because you have that scene where John Candy's sitting out in the car and he's like talking to his wife and he's like, I did it again. I tried too hard. You're right. Um, I'm like such a frustrating human being. Yep. And then, you know, Steve Martin feels bad. And then, right, they have this real emotional connection where they're laughing and they're drinking together. Um and and they resonate like I, I, is that the scene where Steve Martin like says something to him about how much he loves his wife and how he respects how how John Candy so faithfully is devoted right. to his wife. Yeah. And the, and the great part about it is like John Candy hasn't stopped being like the slob, like loud, boisterous guy. It's just that Neil has sort of let his guard down. He's sort of yeah. uh, welcoming the absurdity of the situation and becoming Absolutely. part of it. And as Dell says, going with the flow, you know, yep. uh, which is amazing. Very Taoist. I yeah. dig it. So anyways, let's let's finish up this recap. And eventually they the next day they they get up, they they're driving, they the, the they get pulled over. The car gets impounded and then they hitch a ride in the back of a semi truck. Yeah. Um and they and it's it's like a refrigerator truck, right? Am oh I, yeah, it's a refrigerated truck. I don't remember if it's milk or something that they're carrying, yeah, but it's definitely yeah. like um and this gets them back to Chicago. And then the next thing we see is they're on a train um 
like waiting for a train and they're splitting up and Dell is say, they're saying goodbye to each other. Steve Martin gets on the train to go home and he's going to he's going to go home and he, he starts reminiscing about their trip. He starts reminiscing about his family, mm-hmm. starts reminiscing about all the shenanigans they've gotten into on this trip. And he sort of pieces together some things that Dell has said over the time, which was uh, number one, he says, like, he hasn't been home in years um, and he he realizes that, wait a minute, maybe Dell doesn't actually have a family anymore. Yeah. And so he turns around and goes back to the train station. And this is my other favorite scene in the movie. Yeah. He walks in and there's Dell sitting there alone. And it like, dude, it breaks my heart every time I see yeah. this scene. It's a great, it's a, like, there's so much heart in that. Oh my where God. Where he realizes the, the seriousness of it and realize like he's just going to be sitting there by himself. It's exactly. really, really well done. And then he goes in and he says like, I th- what does he say? Like, where, where's your wife? And then, and then John Candy says like, Oh, she's, she died eight years ago. Yeah. And he's, and he says, I have nowhere to go. Yep. And that's where Steve Martin real like realizes, Oh my gosh, this, this poor man has no, nobody, nothing. He doesn't have a house. He doesn't have anywhere to go. And so he invites him back to his house for Thanksgiving. And, I guess to sort of stay with them indefinitely until he can get on his feet. Um, oh gosh, I didn't get that part. I thought he was at least coming for the holidays, but that's well, yeah. It's he very says touching. as they're walking in, you hear the voiceover. You see them walking in. He says, "I'll just hang out for a day or two, or maybe I'll oh, stay yeah. for like a week. I, what you know, it'll just be a short time." So yeah, yeah. And if we know Dell, it'll probably be a couple months. Um, yeah. But that's the synopsis, you know. Uh, now, did you read? Did you read the deleted scene? Like why? When his wife sees Dell and he introduces him to her, she has such a big reaction. No. Okay, so one of the, there was a whole subplot. There's a bunch of subplots that yeah. they cut because obviously four hours long. So one of the subplots is Steve Martin keeps saying, oh, I'm stuck. I'm stuck here. I'm stuck there. And I'm stuck with this person. And his wife thinks that he's having an affair and that Dell is a woman. And Steve Martin doesn't pick up on that. Oh. So he keeps saying things that accidentally play into it. So when she meets Dell and realizes that Dell is John Candy, wow. it like dissolves her her kind of illusion that yeah. because she does have a particular face on, like she's oh yeah, kind of elated almost, and it did that did feel a little bit odd that she would be like that excited for this random stranger to be showing up in her house. <laughs> yes. Um. So we made it through the synopsis. We did. I'm curious what your thoughts are on uh, about, and I'm also taking notes on my phone okay. of things I want to talk about when we do the second half. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what were your thoughts about them cutting the subplot about uh, Steve Martin's wife thinking he was having an affair? What am I like? On the one hand, I I think it would have like added an extra dimension of yeah. of comedy to the story. Yeah. But on the other hand, I, I, one of the things I appreciate about this story is that they both seem to genuinely really like John Candy's very devoted to his wife. And the right. twist at the end is you realize that he's a widower and right. she's, she's gone. Right. But also one of the things I find quite endearing is Steve Martin really genuinely yes. loves his wife and his family. And he's just trying to get home right. to them. Yeah. Like, no, there's you're right. No, they don't, they don't complexify that at all. It's just people who really care about their family, which is quite beautiful. Yeah, and you're right. Probably, probably had they done that subplot, it would have made that like a little bit less, right? Like, because yeah. if you have doubt in a relationship like that, yeah, it's a tough place to be if you're, if yeah. you're allowed to have doubt in, in a relationship that somebody's right. cheating, <laughs> right? And I thought I thought a lot about that uh, even today while I was on my hike, and I was like, you know what? I think I'm actually cool with the fact that they cut that yeah. out, even though it would have been funnier. 
because I, I even that reaction she has when John Candy walks in, it's big, but it's more, it feels more just like she's just thrilled her husband is there. Right. And she's very touched that he's brought this person home yeah. that has nowhere to go. Yeah. Which yeah, is, no, totally. you know, I, I don't know about you, and I'm, I'm getting ahead of this, but um, I grew up in a family that always really was very committed to the like empty seat at the dinner table, mm. which is like always have one extra seat. Because if there's anyone, if there's anyone who has nowhere to go, mm-hmm. they're always welcome at our table. Yeah. And so like, I, I resonated with that and, and oh, totally. uh, yeah, I resonated with that a lot. Totally. I mean, yes. And I agree with that. Um, but we are getting ahead of ourselves because yeah, we yeah, haven't yeah. even the, talked about. So the, 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 the initial question is, did you like this movie? Did you on a surface level comedy eighties thing? How did, how did it land with you as person who had never actually seen the whole thing? I would say that I liked it uh-huh. and we'll, in a minute we'll pivot and we'll get into the themes in it. Yep. I liked it. And you know, I watched it utterly devoid, devoid of nostalgia right? because I hadn't seen it. Um, <laughs> when I was, Mike's uh, cat, younger. by the way, just tried to bat at his microphone. Yes. So it's the, just the, the cat thus is it losing begins. his mind. Okay. Um, uh, you know, I hadn't seen it when I was younger. It yep. felt very eighties in a lot of really funny ways. Cause there was yeah. like some fun kind of eighties music. Um, there's some real grating. T- I don't love cringe humor. So there's some grating scenes because both characters in their own way are very unlikable. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. both characters in their own way are very endearing. Mm. And, and Steve Martin clearly so, like the, the point of view character and kind of the hero of the movie Right. Um, also a real dick yeah uh, mm-hmm. more than once mm-hmm. and also you relate to him because like we've all so I'm, I'm getting into the analysis of it but we've all been there where you're like <laughs> right. have a difficult person and you're really really trying to be like nice and hospitable to them but you're like oh my god this person is so grating <laughs> um i'm gonna say b plus okay strong yeah. well, b plus for me all right hey i'll take it i'll take it yeah. that's awesome i enjoyed watching it a lot yeah okay good yeah it still holds up for me. I do have the mm-hmm. nostalgia attached to it. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not a movie that I watch super often. Yeah. You know, I've probably seen it, I'd say maybe 10 times since it came out. You know, it's one yeah. of those movies where every couple of years you're like, oh, I could watch that, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's like a, not a, not a super, it's no back to the future for me, you know, but yeah. it's a, you know, and, and it's, it holds up. I think it's funny. There's some yes. really hilarious parts. Yes. And for me, one of the themes that we'll get into, um, which is like the idea of the outcast, the yeah. John Candy character. Yeah. Similar to what you were just talking about, the empty seat at the table, like that. Oh man, we're going to get hits me so yeah. hard. Um, Same for so, reasons we'll get into. Yeah, oh yeah, my, yeah. a huge part of my upbringing. Um, yeah. I def, I feel that big time. Yeah. Almost to the point that it's almost, almost not totally almost a disincentive. Because there were parts where I like felt mm. uncomfortable because it's oh. such an ethos in my family to take care of the outcasts. So, oh, I'm interested oh, yeah. to hear about that. Okay, yeah. So yeah, this is a good place to pivot. Um, and yeah. that is the, that is the main theme for me when I watch this movie is the outcast, the the person. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know what the, if there's like a technical term for this archetype, but the person that is whether they're grading, whether they, you know, some, just a person that society deems not welcome, you know, whether it's in a, in in the broader uh, community or in, in a, in a tight group of people. Um, I've always resonated with that Mm -hmm. type of person, both 
internally and, ex- and externally. And what I mean by that is, you know, at certain points in my life, I was the outcast, you know, yeah. especially in high school. I was, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. You know, I was trying to live this weird, like punk rock alternative life, yeah. but I wasn't very good at it. You know, yeah. um, I was made fun of a lot. Um, but then even going back to when I was in grade school, you know, I was, I didn't know it at the time until yeah. much later, but I dealt with anxiety from the time I was sure. a child. Yep. specifically social anxiety to the point where it, it's it, anytime I think about this stuff, it brings up this memory of when I was a, a kid in, in grade school, I, I was so nervous that I was going to mess up or do the wrong thing Yeah, that I couldn't even go through the lunch line at school. My mom would have to pack my lunch every day of my life because yeah. I was so afraid I would like order the wrong thing or yeah. pay the wrong money or do something you know, and I was always like kind of like a little bit of an outsider. So I always resonate with that. But also, probably maybe because of it, this comes nature nurture stuff here. Maybe because of that, though, I was always very sensitive to those folks that were sitting at the other table yeah. or were not welcomed into the cool crew or whatever. You know, I have a one person in my life that I was, he was in my, I think the first time I met him, he was probably in my first grade class. Yeah. And he was just came from a rough family. His grandparents yeah. raised him. Super outcast. He was I found out much later he had a very 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 hard life, you know. Um and like I always made an effort of being trying to be friends with this guy, you know yeah. what I mean? And my heart always goes out <laughs> goes out to these people. Um yeah. And so when I watch this movie, when I get to that scene where Dell is sitting alone, like my heart breaks for folks yeah. like this. Oh my um, God. So, and, and you were alluding to the fact that you have a similar feeling of oh, this, yeah. but you also oh. said maybe there's some It's, it's a double-edged sword for me. So, so um, one, I experience it because uh, I, I've lived it. I, I, like you, I've been an outcast. Um, I was a shy kid. I'm socially awkward. I'm still socially awkward. Yeah. Um, and then I had a lot of anxiety when I was in school because um, I went to Christian school mm. until I was in ninth grade. Okay. And so it was like schools that didn't have a lot of resources and a lot of budget. So they didn't have the ability to test for learning disabilities. Mm. So I'm very dyslexic, mm. but I didn't figure it out till I was 35 <sighs> as I was doing the final edits on my 500 page doctoral dissertation. Wow. And I was telling a friend of mine who's a learning specialist how frustrating it is because I had put my dissertation through the editing process. And then on top of that, I had personally hired my own external editor oh. and there were still so many typos. Wow. And she's like, well, we were talking about it. And I was like, you know how it is. I just can't see the typos. Um, wow. And she goes, what do you mean? I go, well, it's like numbers. Like I can't remember phone numbers because the numbers move in my head. And she goes, oh, you're dyslexic. And I go, no, I'm not dyslexic. I just can't see typos. And she goes, yeah, you're dyslexic. Wow. And I was like, no, I just can't. And I can't do more than three numbers in sequence. And she's like, dude, you're dyslexic. I go, not dyslexic. I just finished my PhD. I've been (laughs) in how many years of of secondary education? And she's like, my man, I hate to tell you this. Like, you are dyslexic. And she asked me 10 questions and I answered them all. And she's like, this is what I do for a living. You are dyslexic. And I never realized, you know, every single time I had turned a paper into a professor that I had proofread six times and he gave it back to me and he's like, listen, I'm going to give you an A minus on this because this is brilliant, but you should at least like give it one round of edits because it's mm, filled with typos. Wow. And I, and I never once was like, I, ty- I, I proofread it six yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, 
So I had a lot of anxiety in school. Yeah. Um, but by the time I got to public school where they might've spotted a learning disability or, or whatever we refer to dyslexia as, mm-hmm. um, I had just gotten so good at faking it. Mm. Like I could not read books and still get a B on a test. Yeah. You know, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Yeah. So, so there's that. The other thing is, I mean, this is like a story within a story within a story. Like I said, in my family, um, there was always an empty seat at the dinner table and one of my mom's committed ethos of our of our whole way of being as a family was anybody whose like parents was going through divorce so they didn't have a good home environment they always had a welcome seat at our table mm-hmm. so literally my mom would overcook for dinner and random people would show up and that was the that was the whole idea yeah and um the you know that harkens back to my grandfather my grandfather uh growing up through the great depression his mom died his dad remarried and his stepmother hated him. Mm. And, you know, I gen to this day, I don't know if this is metaphorical or literal, but what they would always say is that his, his stepmother beat him so bad that she broke both his legs. And I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah. But eventually he was out on the street as a kid. And then his um, Aunt Mary uh, took him in or his grandmother okay. took him in, some, some, some one else in the family. And mm-hmm. they took him in and they raised him. So he had this experience of found family. You know, I always say there's the family you lose and the family you choose, or sometimes there's the family that finds you. Right. And so they took him in and they raised him. So then when he had a family of his own, there wasn't always an empty seat at the dinner table. And I remember them talking about, you know, uh, Frankie, who like lived down the street, who was like a Fonzie kind of character, yeah, yeah. <laughs> who was always getting into trouble, who was like the one that the the parents were telling their daughters to watch out for him. And he was always welcome yeah. at, uh, at the dinner table. Every, you know, that's that whole thing. Yeah. So we lived that way. Now the dark side of that, uh, my dad used to tell a joke and I'm not saying that this joke is, is I'm not defending the joke, but it's what he used to say. He would mm-hmm. always say, mom would feel sorry for Hitler if she knew that Hitler was fat as a child. Mm. Um, because my mom was overweight as a child and was an outcast. And so that still played into that. Like she really, really, really wanted to welcome everyone. Right. Uh, and thankfully we've moved beyond the point where we, we label body type as someone's ability to, to function. So right, right. Yeah. But nonetheless, this was the idea. So the good thing was we had this overwhelming sense of hospitality. The bad thing was Whenever there was someone who was an outcast, mom put so much burden of responsibility on us. Like, you got to go take care of that person. I remember my oh. sister had a boyfriend and they broke up so many times and he got in a lot of trouble. He got a DUI and some other bad stuff went down. And my mom was like, I want him to move in with you. And I was like, I don't want him to move in with me, mom. And she's like, we need to help him. And I was like, oh. listen, they are going to get back together they're going to break up in six months like they always do. And then he's going to be living in my house and I'm going to have to make some hard choices. And she's like, no, we have to, we got to save him. We got to help him. And so there's, there was, again, for me growing up that way, this double-edged sort of like, you don't have to save everybody. Sometimes you can have boundaries, you know, where that handicapped me was my inability. You know, I remember a therapist one time telling me that I had a pathological inability to say no to anyone in need. Mm. And she's like, that creeps into your love life. It's a very bad thing. Um, So a little bit of a savior complex. But all that neurosis notwithstanding, the ethos of being there for the person who has no one else to turn to and nowhere else to go is so beautiful. And then for me, 
as a person who, you know, still maintains a connection to Christianity, I think it's the greatest genius of what real Christianity actually is as well, is like the idea that the universe itself, that God is on the side of the outcast yeah. and the outlier is pretty cool. Totally. I, yeah, I mean, and that's the thing that, you know, although I've withdrawn from um, religion, a lot of those lessons, you know, are still amazing and still great. And there's a lot of great for me personally, yeah. a lot of great teachings in there. And the one that I don't think there will ever be a time in my life that doesn't resonate is the teaching of, um, you know, the least of these, the idea of yeah. the least of these, anytime you did anything for the least of these, you've done it oh for gosh. me. Right. And although I don't necessarily resonate with the, you've done it for me, like in a literal, yeah. you've done it for Jesus sense. Yeah. The idea that you've, you're helping the greater good, that you're helping the greater universe, whatever, is still like so, so, so powerful. Oh, you yeah, know? man. Um, and, 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 and I have a similar, you know, upbringing, and maybe it's all wrapped up in the, in the religious uh, stuff, but, you know, you know my family. Uh, oh, yeah. My, my parents got into foster care when I was, I think, five or six or something like that. Um, and over the years, I, we just were talking about this recently. You know, my, my parents, my mom told me, I asked her, I was like, how many foster kids have you had? Mm -hmm. And I think she said almost 60 foster kids over the oh course of their, of their, they, they just stopped doing their, my parents are in their seventies now and they just stopped doing it like a year and a half ago. And they, they said, I think the, the school district, somebody at the school district told them they were like the longest family to have children in the school system because yeah. my brother was born in like, I think 66. Does that make sense? My sister is yeah. 71. So I think, yeah. And so from like the seventies to the, for to 2019 yeah <laughs> they had children in the system it's so wild and they were raising kids and so and and most of these kids you know they were from really 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 bad situations yeah. you know and you can't help when when you see some of these situations you can't mm -hmm. help but think like oh my god like your heart your heart can't help but break in my opinion yeah. when you actually see them firsthand right and you can't help sometimes, but to do whatever it is you can. And, and, and for some of us, that's just being a friend or some of us, it's just saying like, Hey, how you doing? Or whatever. Like for other people, yeah. it is being in foster care or other, other people, it's being a philanthropist or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that, that theme is so ingrained oh, in me that like I get emotional anytime I think about the outcast, I literally yeah. get like weepy. <laughs> well, and it's, and it's, you know, I think about, um, I think it's, you know, it's so intrinsic to how I understand the very best of, like I said, the very best of Christianity and the very best of humanity. That's yeah. why you and I have had similar journeys where, you know, way back in our fundamentalist days when people be like, God doesn't like gay people. And you're like, that's stupid. The minute you take someone and you ostracize them, you actually turn them into the person that God loves the most. Yeah. Like there's <sighs> this, that's the essence of Christianity is, is loving the person who is, who is, yeah. uh, you know, the outcast. That's the whole, like we're in, it's Christmas time. Right. Mm -hmm. And the idea that, and again, listener, you don't have to believe in any of this. I don't care. But the idea that, that, uh, God's self incarnates as a human person and the, and the dramatic entry of the divine into the human race, which of course is a metaphor because the divine, the human race is created in the image of the divine. So, so the divine spark is in all of us, but, but this idea that, that the, that Christ itself comes in in the person of Jesus 
And the first thing that happens in the entry is it happens with, with uh, a, a man and a woman who are denied entry uh, and they're not given anywhere to stay. Yeah. So they have to go out into the countryside and they stay with shepherds who are outcasts and they, and they give birth in a stable and, 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 you know, Jesus is born to a family where he appears to be an illegitimate child. Like it's like mm-hmm. all this thing of the love for the person who is the outlier. I just, I, I find it so very beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I, and I was very fortunate, you know, I just kind of like dunked on my mom a little bit for, for always making us be like, no, go talk to the unpopular person. And you're like, mom, I'm barely have friends. Why do I got to <laughs> right, do that? Right. But you know, it was the ethos of who she was as a person at her funeral. I remember talking about how her greatest superpower was that there would be someone who nobody wanted to deal with and she would see their potential. And I remember her saying to me, she goes, keep an eye on that one. They're a diamond in the rough. Yeah. And, you know, she lived that and she made that real for so many people. She saw potential in so many people that they couldn't see in themselves. Yeah. And I think that's why she was so loved. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to be around. But she wouldn't let me sit, sit on her couch when I had green hair. There is that because, because she was also an Enneagram four and, and style and fashion is a big deal. So yes. And you were dating your daughter, which is, all, I was, I was, I was, I, was, you know. I, had a, I had a lot going against me there. Um, <clears throat> she did really love you by the end though, Ryan. Yeah, no, I loved, I mean, it goes without saying that I loved her to death. She was yeah. the best. Um, but, um, but yeah, man. And, and, and I will say, and I don't want to, I don't think we need to go too deep into this. Because I feel like sometimes I bash too much on the evangelical church. Sure. But in my experience, this is one of the places where I I always felt like the church at large was failing. One of the yeah. great um one of the great callings of Christianity, which was to love the least of these, you know. Yeah. Um I can think of a particular person um that went to the church we went to sure um who i don't think i need to name but was a maintenance person yeah and was a john candy type you know what i mean um okay and was grading and was a little of an outcast and i think i can remember how i i personally saw the church as a whole fail that person yeah great in the end yeah in the end which broke my heart failed him greatly and and I think that happened too many times in the church because yeah. I think we've talked about this before where sometimes the, the focus of the church at whole was not where it should have been. It was more on yeah. uh, keeping the, like you have said before, keeping the institution running yeah. rather than maybe this, this person here needs a little bit extra from us. Maybe this person, yeah. and not to say that, you know, I mean, I, I know that there have been a lot of things in that person's life where the, where the church did try to help them, but sure. But I mean, that's what, one of the one of the things where I think you know I think maybe sometimes in the modern even modern day evangelical church they've sort of missed the point, which is loving the outcast and loving yeah. the downtrodden and the person that is in in pain and hurting. Yeah, it's funny. I um, so you know, like I'm. I'm deeply devoted to like the study of mysticism and contemplation. One of the things that's always captivated me is when you look at um, monastic communities in every, in every tradition and every religion. Uh, one of the things that happens a lot of times is people get a chance to talk to a monk or a nun or an ascetic or something of the sort cloistered people living in community. 
when they say, what's the hardest part about being a monk? Everyone says the same thing. They're like, oh, it's the other monks, uh, <laughs> which is hysterical, but also true. Like people are frustrating, man. Yeah, um, and what I am coming to realize at 45 and really pursuing a lot of like deep esoteric contemplative spiritual mysteries in the Christian tradition and, and other places is that the single greatest spiritual practice is trying to find compassion for frustrating people for yeah. me, at least like finding compassion for frustrating people is the sin non of personal transformation. It is really hard. Like there've been a few people in my life. Um, uh, you know, look like I, I wrote a 500 page dissertation on spiritual transformation and I spent years studying all this. And like in the last few years, I've really been captivated by this question. Like, how do you really, 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 really learn to love at the highest level? <laughs> and I put that question out to God in the universe. And what happened is a lot of really difficult situations got thrown across my path and a lot of really difficult people. And only in the last few weeks doing my end of year reflection was like, Oh my God, this is the answer to the question that I asked is like, yeah. dealing with with people that frustrate the shit out of me yeah. and going <laughs> how can i find compassion how right. what is the hack to let me you know love this person mm -hmm. even even you and i've talked about this some of the people who've hurt me the worst in my life randomly in the last few months i've become more aware of deep traumas that they've experienced mm. and every single time i thought god now i have to have compassion for this person <laughs> and i i think but i think i think that's what it's all about yeah. you know yeah um i love this uh carl Jung says everything that frustrates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourself mm -hmm. um i have a stone that has that carved on it and okay. i keep it around and my joke is that every time i'm tempted to throw stones at someone else i hold it in my hand and i read it and i reflect on what it means Everything that frustrates us about others can lead us to understanding of ourselves. It doesn't mean that we don't set hard boundaries when we have to. Right. But it does mean that, you know, we, um, when people grade on us, it's a good opportunity to reflect and grow. And yes, absolutely. The love of the other, the love of the outcast, the love of the outlier, or the love of the person who is so different from me that it scares me is, in my opinion, the greatest spiritual task. And at the end of the day, you and I talk about this all the time, I don't think you have to be a particularly religious or spiritual person to recognize that as maybe one of the greatest human goods. Yeah. One of the greatest ideas humanity's ever come up with. Yeah, I totally agree, man. That's awesome. Yeah, and then I just throw the boundaries thing in where I'm like, in the process of doing that, also don't forget to love yourself. Because I think if you love yourself, you love others. And if you love others, you learn to love yourself. Yeah, and I will say that for me, I, I agree with you. There's been times, I can I can think of particularly, uh, how can I word this politely? Um, people that are especially hard sometimes. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. People that are especially intense, maybe, is a, mm -hmm. is a way to put it. And and I and I have a tendency now that you you've mentioned this I know I have a tendency to sometimes um, bend over backwards when when maybe I need to put <laughs> a little bit harder boundaries in place and say like hey uh, you know you've consumed uh, a lot of my time um, may, yeah. maybe there's maybe there's more room to put boundaries in place but uh, so well, that's a good reflection. Yeah, and I, you know, um, Christianity tells us to love the least of these. It tells us to, to you know, forgive, turn the other cheek. I 
Absolutely. You know, but, and then also you got to love your, again, if you love yourself, what, what is the greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. You can't love your neighbor if you don't love yourself. You can't love yourself if you don't love your neighbor. Yeah. Schopenhauer has this beautiful essay on the basis of morality that's come across my uh, awareness recently. And I think you'd probably, I feel like you would dig Schopenhauer. Okay. But he basically says, he talks about that, you know, all the scruples aside, when a human sees another human in danger, Right. When you see someone, even when you're walking out on the street and you see someone trip and fall, mm-hmm. there's like an intrinsic yep. reactionary urge to reach out and help that person. Yeah. And and he talks about how people will risk their own life to save another person. And he says, the reason is because in that moment, we know that we are one and we are connected. Mm. And that, that to me, I think is one of the most beautiful things. Mm. Uh, it cuts through the bullshit in our filters mm. and, and reminds us that while we're all different, where mm. there's also some intrinsic thing. So wow. I do think loving each other and loving ourselves is the same. But my one of my favorite, I'm scrolling through my phone looking for this, <laughs> one of my favorite quotes from Carl Jung yep. on loving yourself. This is, this is Jungian gold right here. <laughs> this is right up there with the daring misadventure. Yeah. He says, the acceptance of oneself is the essence of the whole moral problem and the epitome of an entire outlook on life. That I feed the hungry that I forgive an insult, that I love my enemy in the name of Christ, all these are undoubtedly great virtues. What I do unto the least of my brethren, I do unto Christ. But what if I should discover that the least among them, the poorest of all the beggars, the most impudent of all the offenders, the very enemy himself, that these are all within me, and that I myself stand in need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. What then? As a rule, the Christian's attitude is then reversed. There is no longer any question of love or long-suffering. We say to the brother within us, raka, which means fool, and condemn and rage against ourselves. We hide it from the world. We refuse to admit ever having met the least among the lowly in ourselves. I love that passage, by the way. God damn you, young... Dude, young he's and a, restless man, I, I love it badass so much. <laughs> yeah, but but his idea is the reason sometimes other people frustrate us is because they take yeah. us to places in our own shadow that we want to we don't want to deal with. Yeah. The John Candy, you know, what's his what's his the character's name? Dell. The Dells of the world frustrate the shit out of us because they remind us of the parts of ourselves that we don't like. Yeah, and we don't want to think about that. Totally. You you've, you've talked about, I, mean, I think you've referenced, you referenced years and years and years ago when you were uh, teaching at the, at the church, you, mm-hmm. you had referenced that concept and yeah. it's always stuck with me and it's always been a yeah. thing. And thank you for this, honestly, like, yeah. because it's always a thing that when I see, when, when something is grading on me, I always stop yeah. and I think, wait a minute, is it, do I do this? Is this a thing? Oh, that, yeah. Is this a thing yeah. that like feels too close to home that is like, yeah. and it's a great way to go through life because I think sometimes when you do that and you step back, it allows you to have that compassion for the person yes. because you see yes. yourself there. Like you're saying, like you see you're the person falling down on the street to go pick them up. You know what I mean? I'm the, absolutely. I'm the person that's doing that grading thing. Like whatever it is, like I'm an asshole and uh, this person's yeah. being an asshole to me. Like, Oh wait, I'm an asshole. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah and and i think i think that happens personally i also think it happens i think it happens systemically i think it happens in a big picture way like i think that um you know so you and i both have a background in the fundamentalist evangelical church like we um fundamentalist evangelical church does not have a lot of tolerance for sexual 
uh, variety. <laughs> Let's put it that <laughs> okay. way. It's a nice uh, way what at it. one point we would have said, or, you know, sexual outliers, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is hysterical to me. Right. Um, persecuting and hostile to the LGBTQ plus community mm-hmm. and, and a lot of other uh, things, which is hysterical because I would also 100%, I would diagnose the mainstream fundamentalist evangelical church as being profoundly sexually dysfunctional. Yes. Completely out of touch Oof. with sex and sexuality and so completely out of touch and so unhealthy in the way they approach it that of course, of course, so of repressed, course. of course they're going to attack anyone who's yes. willing to stand up and go, this is my sexuality, I'm proud of it and I'm willing to suffer for it. I talked about this uh, on the Evangelical podcast because if you're, yeah. not a, if you're not willing to talk about these things, of yeah. course you're going to have some dysfunction in your system. Oh my God. Well, or even, even, you know, one of the things I love about this movie is that it, it's a, it's a movie that where family is important and found family is really important. The family yep. that you create, that's yep. part of this idea of reaching out to the outcast is taking the person who, who, uh, is without family, without tribe, without community and saying, come join us. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we, we love you. Yep. And sometimes it's also there's someone who has community, but also going, you know, I extend love to you, even though your community is very different than mine, your tribe is right. very different than mine. But, um, but, uh, one of the things that drives me crazy is, you know, I am someone who I was divorced at a very, very young age. And also I, I come from a family that has had a lot of like shenanigans. Mm. And so for at least two decades, my concept of family has been atypical. And one of the things we all joke about in 2021 is that, you know, modern family or contemporary family is very different right. from the old school notions that a lot of <laughs> us were raised on. And some of us are still getting free of that old school notion that like to create a family, you have to get married and have 2.5 kids in a white picket fence. And we're yeah. still deconstructing that yeah. um, and, and understanding like we can create our own sense of family. Yeah. But in that context, I have to say this because I love it so much. One of the things that I find funniest about the the world that you and I grew up in is this old insistence on defending the biblical model of family right right this always cracked me up it's like we gotta defend the biblical model of family and i'm like what is that and like it's like a man and a woman married to 2.5 kids and i'm like have you read the bible yeah. because i have yeah. a lot and the biblical the biblical description of family is fucking bananas yeah. like families in the Bible are dysfunctional and crazy and polyamorous and polygamous and yeah. like insane. Especially the Bible is basically like the, a strong argument for therapy to exist. Well, I was just going to say, insane. especially when you talk about some of like the kings and stuff who had concubines and all the like the craziness that was ensuing in, in the royalty. You know what I mean? Like it's like Man. these are the people you hold on the highest esteem, but their family structure was not. Uh, one man, one woman. <laughs> no, <laughs> dude, people kids. always tell me, like, oh, the, the, the biblical model of family. And I'm like, please show me the biblical model of family in the Bible. I would love to see it. Yeah. Like the closest you get is like, what? Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Right, right. Mary, the like uh, seeming mother of an illegitimate child who at one point had to tell her husband like, hey, just so you know, an angel showed up and now I'm pregnant. And he was like, cool, 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 cool. Like, uh, you know, and again, no disrespect to the, the great miracle of Christmas, which I'm excited about, but this is one of the things I love is that family and relationship and, and even sex and sexuality in scripture are so yeah. unashamedly zany and all over the place. Right. So pluralistic. It's, it's, 
it is uh, not. <laughs> let's use a very contra- controversial term. It's relational anarchy. It is so all over the place. Yeah, and and the idea that that's where God is at work, and then we look at that, and for some reason, people in that tribe and in, in that movement go, okay, we have to defend this very, very conservative idea of what family is allowed to be. Right. As opposed to like, I don't know about you, dude, but my experience is like, I mean, I had both. The first half of my life, I had a very strong nuclear family. I had a very close extended Irish Italian family. Mm. And I love that. And I would not change it. Yeah. My mom died. My brother died. My relationship with my dad is very strained. Mm-hmm. I'm My sister's my favorite person in the world and we're very close and I love her so much. And I, what a gift to know that I talk to my sister every single day of my life. But, um, but family for me is like my mentor here in Taos yeah. and my like ride or die friends and you right. and like, you know, yeah. my superpowers is, is being best friends with ex-girlfriends and right. like meeting people that I vibe with so deeply and staying in touch with people on every continent. Like, that to me is what family is. And so I love this movie's sense of like John Candy frustrating the shit out of Steve Martin and then being invited into his mm. family at the end of the movie. I love it. Which which I think a lot of us experience at Thanksgiving. Like, you know, we're, we're, many of us are the extra. I, I have often been the extra seat at the Thanksgiving table. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I can't yeah. say that I've been the extra seat because I have been blessed with a very good, my nuclear family is pretty intact, you know what I mean? And when we are, I'm very grateful for the fact that like I have a very tight relationship with my, both my parents, I love them dearly, mm-hmm. you know, my my siblings are, are great. Um, but I also do have a found family, you know what I mean? Which includes folks like you and yeah. Garrett and Tom who yeah. like, Dude, like you said, ride or die. Like, yep. If there's a train track and it splits, and my parents mm-hmm. are on one side and Tom and Garrett are on the other side, it's gonna yeah. be a hard choice. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, Charlie, um, problem. Like I said, I love this movie, and there's parts of it that I love, and parts of it that were like hard for me, but not in a bad way. Like I, Debbie, you know this. I had like a vendetta against Thanksgiving for like ten years, oh. five, ten years. Okay. But growing up, me. Thanksgiving was my favorite holiday because my entire Irish family would get together for it, and and Irish Italian family. So like. You know, Thanksgiving for oh, yeah. us started with lasagna. <laughs> Your family was intense. I'm just yeah. going to say. I, oh, my God. I had a oh particularly God. close. I, I dated Mike's sister for a time, and I had a particularly close interaction with his family for a time, and yeah. they were intense. <laughs> and you you dated my sister back then when, like, the family was still really, really close yeah, before yeah, yeah. a lot of death and a lot of tragedy. Right, right. And so, um, yeah. So, Thanksgiving, we'd all get together at my Uncle Red's, um, and... You know, there'd be lasagna. I didn't know that not everybody had lasagna before <laughs> turkey. And then, you know, lasagna and then antipast and then yeah. Thanksgiving food would come out and there'd be turkey and there'd be dessert and then there'd be turkey sandwiches. It was just, <laughs> it was just the greatest smorgasbord. I loved uh, it so much. I love getting everybody together. Yeah. And then, you know, when my parents got divorced, mm. one year they split a couple days before Thanksgiving. One year, like, it was two things. It was like one year we were coming to the end. My parents had a had a rough their final two years before they split. And at one point they're like, we're probably going to split anyway. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to Disney world for Thanksgiving. And I was like, that's a weird choice. And they're like, yeah, we probably, we'll probably be all split up by this time next year. So let's like have a final hurrah as a family. It was so awkward. It was so weird. The only good memory I have from that trip is 
my sister and I at a certain point were like, this is so weird. We got to get out of here. And so we peaced out in the evening of Thanksgiving and we were walking around MGM studios in Disney. And at 9 PM, they officially switched over to Christmas from Thanksgiving to Christmas. And all of a sudden Christmas music started playing and fake snow was falling from the sky and I was like crying because I had that mm. moment with my sister and it was wow. so painful and awkward that yeah. my family was falling apart. Yeah. And then the next year, here's modern family listeners at work. The next year, my mom and dad decided to split like three days before the holiday. So we ended up not celebrating the holiday. They'd been on again, off again all year. And so I had like nowhere to go. And my former favorite holiday blew up days before yeah. and a bunch of people invited me and i was like no i'm done with this holiday i'm never celebrating it again and i stayed home by myself and it was my ex-wife who found out about it huh. and had her brother bring me a bunch of thanksgiving food because she's an amazing human and we were still yeah, friends yeah, yeah and that's like to me that thing of you know so there was a couple years where i was like i'm done with this holiday i won't celebrate it yeah. and then um i got back on the horse when I was living in California and found family, yeah. I was living with a bunch of other grad school students and my girlfriend at the time. And we're like, Hey, wouldn't it be crazy if we had like a wild Thanksgiving feast? And we did. And it yeah. was like yeah. hippie California Thanksgiving feast <laughs> living in the like commune next to the nudists and the crazy people and all this stuff. And I was like, all right, this is, it was my eye opener where I was like, wow, when you're again, family, you lose and the family you choose, yeah. like you can sort of make it and make it work. Yeah. Um, and I love I love what you have because you have both. You still maintain a connection to your nuclear family. Your biological family is so close. But but like my mom, who's no longer with us, and like your parents, who are built into the DNA of your family, is also this notion of inclusion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh is yeah. Inviting other people in. So of course you would have a strong nuclear family, and then and a strong found family. It's, and it's the best, man. I mean, I, I, again, I wouldn't trade it for the world because, you know, we had this uh, Christmas party the other night at, at uh, my buddy Tom, at Tom's house who was on the podcast. And, um, and it's, there's, there's a, we have a few close friends, you know, that um, if you weren't living in New Mexico, you'd be part of this, you know, this, this, this close friendship that is, it, it feels sometimes almost closer than, nuclear family you know what i mean because there's this connection that goes yeah. so deep for in in weird yeah. and and interesting ways like for us for a lot of us mm -hmm. it's music and and punk rock that we grew up in yeah. you know for you and i it, it tends to be this tension that we play with with religion and, yeah. and stuff like you know there, there's these awesome ties that bind the, the family that you choose that is 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 so beautiful and so like exciting you know, it, it's, and it's really great. I mean, I was, um, for a while, I spent a long time in a relationship with, uh, a woman who you were friends with as well, uh -huh. who it ended, it ended badly. And then again, we pivoted very well to friendship <laughs> and I have nothing but good things to say about her now. Yep. Yep. Um, but I remember I was very close with her son. And so there were points where like, uh, you know, she and I and her son and her ex-husband and her, and her ex-husband's wife and their kids would all hang out. And, um, and I remember, or like she would go on vacation with her ex-husband and his wife and their kids. And, and I, remember, I remember people would be like, what the hell is happening here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I remember her thing was like with, with her son in particular, it was really, really inspiring. I, you know, I was like, is it ever weird to have, you know, bio dad and then like pseudo stepdad and this and that. And she's like, no man. She was like, this is family in the 21st century. Yeah. And also, like, the more people loving each other, the better, exactly. right? Exactly. 
Oh my god! And like with him, with Josiah, who I hope comes on and does an episode with us because he's told me several times he wants to, like, <laughs> the more people loving him, the better. And isn't that kind of what it's all about? Exactly. I was just going to say, I have a friend who I'm not going to name, but had a strained relationship with their father and for a mm-hmm. time got to experience the type of relationship that I have with mm-hmm. my father and my father became like a second father to this person. Yeah. And to this day, this person, this friend of mine holds my dad yeah. in like super high regard because he was yeah. able to be there in that regard, in that, in that capacity for him. And yeah. we like worked on like building projects and we worked on like, it, it, it was a thing that that person needed. Right. Yeah. Or, or, or didn't have that type of relationship and like, of course, that's amazing. Like, why not? Like, yeah. more love for everybody. You know what I mean? Yeah. If, if a person is in need, like, let's spread the love. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think um, that might be the most important thing. I remember I went one of the spiritual director training programs I went through. They were like, you know, identify your authentic religion. And I was like, well, I know what my authentic religion is. It's Christianity, but it's early mystical Christianity. And they're like, no, 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 no. That's fine. That's great. That's your creed. But at the end of the day, like, what do you really functionally believe? Hmm. And I was like, oh, I was like, well, I think love is the most important thing. And I think probably the DNA of the universe and the human person, because God is love. I think that all people are probably good, but wounded. And I think all suffering is probably redemptive. And I realized like that's my authentic religion, mm. but, but so much of that comes from seeing what happens when we take a risk and stretch out of our comfort zone and, and show love to someone, you know, who's not a part of our inner right. nucleus yeah. uh, and what that can do, not only for them, but for us to take it back to Schopenhauer. Like, I love the way Schopenhauer says it. Like, when he says like, why would you risk your life to save the life of another person? And he says, at the moment you do that, you're saving your own life. Mm. And part of that is because yes, you realize we're all one. So in saving you, I'm saving me. But also there is something salvifically transformative Mm. about showing kindness to another person. Yeah. Um, When I had heavily deconstructed my evangelical upbringing, and I really, really struggled. You you and I know this. The two things that I struggle with the most in evangelical Christianity is the notion of eternal hell, which to me was irreconcilable with a mm-hmm. loving God. Mm-hmm. And the 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 harsh uh, exclusion of the LGBTQ plus community. Like it mm-hmm. didn't make yeah. sense to me. Yep. And so I washed out of the church and I went and I was uh, getting my master's in counseling at one point. And I was doing an internship or placement placement with uh, an organization that worked with at-risk youth. And my supervisor knew that I had previously been an evangelical minister. So she was always like, I remember her saying, she's like, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a case because I want to stretch you. And I never worked with kids under the age of 12. Um, Cause I'm just, I'm good with teenagers and tweens, young mm-hmm. kids, just not my strong point. Yeah. And so she purposely assigned me this one kid who was like seven or eight. And she's like, he's seven or eight. He, he lives with his great grandmother and her life partner. Um, and she's like, I want to give you this to stretch you. And I thought what she was trying to do was stretch me because um, I didn't work with young kids. 
And what she meant was she wanted me to work with these two elderly lesbians <laughs> because she thought that would be hard for me because I was a former evangelical, wow. which I totally like, did not care at all. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd like deconstructed that right, a long time right, ago. Right. Yeah. Um, but this kid's parents had been heroin addicts. Mm. And as a result, he'd been found wandering in the middle of the night in like parking lots twice. Wow. Cause they would lock him in a closet and then he would get out and he would just get out of the house. And, uh, I would go and work with them and work with him. And every time I was in their house, I was like, there's something familiar here and I cannot put my finger on it. I'm not, I, you know, I don't hang out with a lot of seven year old lesbians. I don't hang out with a lot of eight year olds. So I can't quite put my finger on what is different here is always getting me. And so I was there one time and, and, and his grandmother, his great grandmother came up to talk to me and she's like, you know, I just want to thank you so much. Like he so look forward, looks forward to when you come and it means the world. And we so appreciate that. And she goes, I want to tell you something. Now I've heavily deconstructed evangelicalism and Christianity and religion at this point, And I've taken a big step back from it. I don't want anything to do with it. Right. She goes, I want to tell you something and I hope it's okay. And I go, yeah, sure. Tell me. Have I told you the story? I, I, yeah, go keep going. It's great. Because I want to tell you something. I hope it's okay. I go, okay. She goes, I just want you to know that my partner and I pray for you every single day. And she goes, I hope it's okay to tell you that. And I hope that doesn't offend you. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, taken aback. (laughs) And she's like, we just, you know, we just, we pray for you every single day because we're Christians and that's a big part of our world. And we just think God has such a good plan for your life. And, and just, we so appreciate you and the love you show to our great grandchild. <laughs> and, uh, and we hope it's okay for us to tell you that. Yeah. And at that moment, it was like a sound that was always out of focus. I couldn't hear yeah. suddenly came into focus. And I realized that the thing that was always familiar was that they always had a Christian music station playing and there was always (laughs) contemporary Christian music playing in the background. And I had so tuned it out that I never noticed. Every time I was there, it was on and I never noticed that radio station was always on. And when she said that it clicked and the comical irony of these two women who'd been together for 40 years. And then she opened up to me about them being in love and like being openly together as a lesbian couple 40 years previous. And right. this was like 15, what was this? 14 years ago. Right, and so right, right. 40 years before that. Yep. And like the amount of, of ostracization, that yep. was that the right word? They were being Ostr- ostracized. Yeah. And, and like that, and then her telling me, but they love Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And they're Christians and they want to pray for me, the former evangelical minister. <laughs> I, I, I cannot explain to you what it did to me to experience the love that they showed me in that moment on mm. the other side mm. of my church community having yeah. sort of betrayed me and blown up. And so in a very strange way, these two women saved Christianity for me in that moment and in that conversation. And then I, as the like graduate educated 
in-home counselor who was like going to help at-risk youth and be there to like provide a service for them. Mm-hmm. Suddenly I realized, no, I'm the outcast right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're the ones showing me love. Yeah. And what an insane world we live in. Yeah. And how powerfully transformative it is to just see another person and their suffering and actually show love to them yeah. and say, Hey, I see you and you're an amazing human being and you're loved. And like, mm. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not telling the story well, but it, it was, it was a life changing moment for me and I wasn't counting on it. Yeah. I was just going to say that's, this is slightly tangential to the plot of the movie, <laughs> mm-hmm. but you, but you're bringing something up in me, which is there are these moments sometimes that I have personally mm-hmm. where I feel the heart of yeah. what my given religion was trying to say to me. Yeah. And they're like that. There, yeah. there are these moments yeah. where, where the heart comes through yeah. and I have these emotional visceral reactions to yeah. it that are doing more work yeah. than probably the, 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 the formal religion was doing at the time. Yeah. You know what I mean? The, the yeah. formal practice of the religion was doing. Yeah. And, and a story like that are, are things that, Again, I don't necessarily believe in a physical God, but the, the but the point of it, the, the the story of it, sometimes you have these these things that happen that capture the essence of what it's yeah. saying, and those are yeah. uh, can't yeah, change for the world. And hey, look, like take it or don't. The essence of the Christian myth, the idea that we are trying to work for restoration. Yeah, we're trying to work. For what I love, the mystic that I follow, Origen of Alexandria, his thing, this this idea that the Apocatos tosses, that the whole universe is moving towards an arc of healing and restoration and reintegration, where we come together, but also maintain our unique diversity and individuality, mm. where I'm me and you're you, but we're one, but not in a way that erases the difference. Right where difference and connection live in beautiful harmony. That's gorgeous. And one of the things that's also beautiful about it is it totally mirrors what we're doing in our own human journey. Right. Because we come into the world, uh, you know, bright, luminous beings. And then like this poor kid that I described, whose, whose parents were heroin addicts, who got locked in a closet, who the police found wandering in a Walmart parking lot in the middle of the night we are wronged. We are wounded. And when that happens, what happens is we, we fragment internally and parts of us break off. And even if that's not the case, we have a relatively healthy childhood. Parts of us get rewarded. Parts of us we're told are bad. And those parts get repressed and they get pushed into our shadow. And then our own personal journey into later into life is learning to love and accept the parts of ourself that we were told were unacceptable. Yeah. And to reintegrate them and bring them back and and to accept them. Because ironically, the most transformative thing you can do with something is accept it. If you can put love towards something, that's what actually lubricates it for change and growth. Mm. Even if, if it's something that you consider problematic. Mm. And usually most of the parts of yourself that get broken off and repressed are actually very good. Uh, that just weren't given praise or were given right. shame for unhealthy reasons. So... So it, it, the same thing I'm doing in the world with humanity is the same thing I'm doing with myself, recognizing the ostracized parts of me 
and giving them love and bringing them back and letting them out into the light and bringing them into the conversation in my own kind of inner boardroom. Yeah. Just the same way, you know, we're doing that as a human family. Yeah. Um, honestly, at the end of the day, if it's all romantic nonsense, it's romantic nonsense. <laughs> I'm willing to, to die on a hill for. Right. Like, I, I think it's beautiful. Yeah. And so, you know, a Jungian would say like, you know, the, the beautiful thing of these two people trying to connect is like John Candy, when you watch this movie, he represents the obnoxious part of you. Because I don't care who you are, when John Candy's obnoxious and Steve Martin is not wanting to deal with him because like John Candy is the obnoxious part of his own self. When Steve Martin has that meltdown and he uses the F word so many times... He is being more obnoxious Way than John more. Candy in the worst scene of the movie. And that's the point. Right. Yeah. Is you could, you could do a psychoanalysis of this film where you could say John Candy doesn't even exist. He's a projection of what is being drawn out of Steve Martin because he's having frustration after frustration after frustration as the travel system is failing him. Right. And he finds himself becoming more and more and more of an asshole. Right. And then what he does is he finds love for that part of it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then that allows him to be less of an asshole. Right. And then John Candy, on the other hand, is kind of an asshole, but he's a lovable asshole. Yeah. And he has that beautiful moment where he's like, look, I know me and I like me and I love yeah. me. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what we're all working towards and trying to be able to give to someone else. Totally. Well, it's because, you know, part of that is, in my opinion, in the movie at least, is because they have that beautiful moment when they're in the, in the, the hotel yeah. where, where Steve Martin like says to him, like, what's, I forget the, I forget, I should have written down the, the line, but he says something like, what, what's your secret or how do you do it? Yeah. And Dell says, you just go with the flow. Yeah. And there, to me, that's the other big theme in this movie that always resonates with me yeah. because I do think, I think a life is well lived in my opinion. If you can, if you can have some balance between like structure yeah. And like freedom and like hippie, yeah. like just going with the flow. Yeah. And I, and I, and I hadn't ever picked up on that line until this viewing actually, but yeah. it's a thing that's become like for me, very, very important, which is the idea of like, for instance, my girlfriend is way more organized than I am. Okay. Sure. And we were, we were going on vacation a couple of months ago and she was like, well, what are we doing? What's the plan? What's we're going on vacation for like a week and a half. And I'm like, well, we're going to go down to Virginia. We're going to, yeah see what happens and we got some time and and she was i could tell she was stressing out a little bit and i was yeah. like listen i just need you to i'm gonna ask you personally as a favor to me to just trust me and let's yeah. we have to be at this place at this time and we have to be at this place at this time but in between let's see what happens yeah and we had some amazing amazing experiences we ended up finding a random stream to kayak down that we yeah. would have never known existed until we were in that town you know and there's something beautiful about that uh just going for it mentality. You know what I mean? There is, it's, there's something, uh, have we ever talked about Wu Wei? No. Okay. So my favorite philosophical system in, in all of human existence is Taoism. I think Taoism yep. is brilliant. Yep. Um, I find it very analogous with Hebrew wisdom literature, but in, in the Tao Te Ching and in Taoist system, one of, one of the cool principles is this idea of Wu Wei. It's really hard to translate. Okay. Some people call it like, acting without acting or creative quietitude or effortless action, but they describe it as sailing as opposed to rowing, like okay, going yep. with the wind and going with the flow and going with the current, like mm. maximum efficiency. 
being in the Tao. Yeah, and it's yeah, that yeah. idea of like getting in the current of life and just going with it and letting it take you somewhere, which doesn't necessarily mean like being a homeless person, like rolling through, but it's, it's kind of being in tune with, with who you are and allowing for effortless spontaneity while still functioning responsibly. Right, right. And it's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And I, I love that, that like, that the, that the river metaphor finds its way into that where you're like, yeah, we found this great place yeah, to yeah. like kayak. That's great. Yeah. Cause that's kind of what Wu Wei is. Okay. It, it, you know, or uh, other people say, what is that thing? Like, don't push the river or don't push the rope. Yeah. Uh, you know, that thing of like, yeah, man, go with stuff, C- give room for the universe to surprise you. Mm. And that's the funny thing as obnoxious as John Candy is. And he is. Yeah. And he is like, he's duplicitous at points. He's dishonest. He does take Steve Martin's money and credit cards. So he doesn't, he's not flawless by any stretch of the imagination, but he also like people help him because he's nice and he goes with stuff Exactly, and he creates space for good things to happen. Yes. Uh, And bad things happen too. And they do. But when we're so fixated on controlling things, to prevent bad things from happening, what we don't do is we don't make space for good things to happen. Mm. Um, yeah. And I've experienced a lot of bad shit in my life that, that has been shockingly poetic yeah. in the amount of bad coincidences that showed up. But I have found that when you make space, extraordinary things happen. Right. If you give it room for them to happen. Yeah. So yeah, I, yeah, I dig that. I dig that, man. And and definitely anybody listening, like look up Wu Wei. Look up Alan Watts talking about Wu Wei if you okay. really want to blow your mind. Ryan, you would love it. Is there definitely a video look up or audio of him talking about it? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. all over YouTube. Awesome. All over YouTube. Great. Did we do it? I think we did it. I think what I want to say to anyone listening is, it's the holidays. Reach out to someone in need. Make space for someone who maybe doesn't have people because there's a lot of lonely hurting. The holidays are a hard time. There's a lot of lonely hurting people. Uh, The holidays are beautiful. Mental health tends to take a plummet. I have a lot of friends right now that I know and I care about who are hurting because they're Mm. thinking about former parents that they lost due to death, distance, or discord. They're thinking about former partners that aren't there anymore. You know, there's, there's another meaning to the empty seat at the dinner table. It's not just the space for the extra person. It's also the person who's not there. Right. And so many people are feeling that pain deeply. Yeah. And so taking the time to like be there for the person who has lost someone is, is so beautiful and so gorgeous. Again, that's the other thing that gets me with John Candy. You know this, like I've lost my mom. I've lost my brother. I've lost a lot of other people. Um, One of the things I do around the holidays, I took this giant hike by myself today for a couple hours and I didn't listen to music and I just made empty space Mm. because one of my mentors has said like, you need empty space because part of what you do with that is remember the people that are no longer around, but still around. Yeah. So, you know, one, make space for people that you can reach out who need that. And then two, do it for yourself. Take that extra time. Like John Candy talking to his wife, take extra time to remember the grandparents or the parents or the siblings or the friends or the teachers or the mentors that meant something to you because someone doesn't have to physically show up at your dinner table to still be a part of your found family. Right. Like your found family are the people you love, even if they're not physically there with you anymore, they become yeah. a part of your heart 
and a part of your memory and a part of your tradition. Um, and, and make space to carry that. And I think if you do that and you get in love and you get in the flow, then you'll start to notice other people for whom you can make a difference. Yeah. Even if the difference is like a kind word in a checkout line. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, so. and, And to sort of tag team that a little bit, I would take it one step further. And I would say for those of us out there who may be the person who needs a seat at the table, yeah. For someone who is struggling with, maybe you have mental health issues, maybe you deal with depression or whatever, know that there are people that care. Yeah. And, and sometimes you just need to take that extra step to ask a friend for a little bit of help yeah. or, or whatever it is, because it does get better or it can get better. So. It really does. And I, you know, I appreciate you saying that, Ryan, because the thing to say to someone, hey, I'm having a rough day. Exactly. Or like the holidays are hard for me. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm such a big holiday person and it's December 13th and I haven't put up my Christmas tree yet. <laughs> and it's just because, you know, sometimes they're hard. Yeah. yeah. And this year it's a little bit extra hard and, uh, and that's okay. Yeah. That's part of life. Yeah. That's part of life is making space for the hurt and the happy. Um, Hmm. and the good and the grief right like wow. yeah yeah buddy so hmm. man way deeper than i thought we were going to get out of planes trains and automobiles yeah but before before my edit we're under two hours so this might actually make it might by be the time i edit episode. it might be the shortest episode dear listener know this one thing <laughs> If you're sad on the holidays, you're not alone. And Ryan and I love you yes. and we care about you. And if you've gotten this far into the episode, it means that you chose to take a piece of your holiday season <laughs> and spend it hanging out with us. And that means the world to us and you mean the world to us. So thank really you. It really does. really does. So in all honesty, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Um, happy holidays to every single person that listens to this. I uh, hope you have love in your life and I hope you... Uh, Hope you have a great holiday season, um, Mike. Merry yeah. Christmas and Happy New Year. The next time you hear the two of us together, we'll be celebrating our birthdays together in the new year, and we'll be excited to share that with you too. Yeah, awesome. Love you, everybody. Have a good one. Peace on, people. Be good. <laughs> no, Mom's going to do the turkey. Yeah, Dad wants ambrosia, so I guess we got to get those miniature marshmallows. And I'll do the crescent rolls, and you do the cranberry. You know I can't cook. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'll see you tomorrow then. Gobble, gobble. <laughs> oh, bye-bye. <laughs>